Today's scripture reading is from John 6, 25 through 42, and 48 through 59. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do? To be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So then they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives, the, gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Some of the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is a bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for my life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you uh, today. My name is Anthony Gamage. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life, where we exist to know Jesus and make him known. Uh, Obviously, a lot of text today. Uh, with a relatively short amount of time, uh, but you know, honestly, it's more important that you hear from God's Word uh, than you hear from me, and so I wanted to make sure uh, you read most of that passage, but uh, we're going to be going back in and, and doing kind of uh, an overview of this passage, so if you have your Bible, it would be great if you opened it to John chapter 6. Uh, we're going to start off looking in verse 25 and, and work our way through uh, today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or a device, I would encourage you to follow along in your bulletin as it is printed there. And we're actually going to dive right in because there's just a lot to cover. There is so much here. Uh, In fact, there's no way we're going to get to it all. But what I want to do today is pull the camera back and and take a wider view of really where we've been for the last two weeks. Uh, Essentially, we've looked at two narratives, two stories, the feeding of the 5,000. And then you have this that little section we looked at last week where Jesus is calming the storm. 
Today it changes gears where Jesus just begins to teach, right? There's this long part where Jesus uh, has, uh, is engaging with these Jewish leaders. And so it's quite different. And in order to understand some of what he's saying here, because some of what he's saying here is pretty tough to gather, and we'll talk about more of this at communion, but we have to pull the camera back and see where we started here in chapter 6. And, and let me just point your attention uh, to chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, this is before the feeding of the 5,000, and they remain during this time period. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. All right, so in order to understand where we're headed today, we must think like an Israelite, or like a, a Jewish person would in this day, as Jesus comes in with all of this talk of bread and, and his flesh and blood uh, in the context of Passover. So here's what we're talking about when we talk about Passover Uh, This was one of the most, if not the most, significant feasts in the Jewish tradition. Essentially, it points God's people to what we see revisited time and time again in the Old Testament. When they're at captivity, God is saying, remain faithful, trust in me, do not fear, because remember, I delivered you from Egypt, from the land of slavery, right? That's where Passover begins in Exodus chapter 12. It's the final um, plague that God sends on the Egyptians so that he finally says, fine, get out of here. Remember that? It's where the angel basically visits uh, all of the households of Egypt and kills their firstborn. Now, do you remember what God's provision was at that first Passover that made it so that God's people did not experience that same sort of suffering and death? What uh, their salvation was? Well, essentially, God said, I want you to kill a lamb and take its blood and spread it on your doorposts. And that would mean the angel would pass over their home and they would not Uh, experience that. So the blood of the lamb was their salvation, right? You'll kind of see where this is going as we move towards the rest of this. Now, we also have to remember what happened right after this, right? What happened right after this is that uh, they escaped, but where do they show up? Well, it's this big sea that they have to cross, and they're kind of pinned in. Their enemies coming in behind them. So what happens? Uh, God basically separates the sea through Moses raising his staff, right? And they get to go through on dry ground. And then where did that then take them? Well, into the wilderness, where they would spend quite some time. And what was God's provision for them in the wilderness? Well, it was bread from heaven or manna from heaven. Are you you following along so far with, with where we're headed? We have this prophet Moses, right, who is leading God's people, and we have God's provision for them that's demonstrated in Passover, both of the lamb and the shedding of the lamb's blood, and with this bread, this manna from heaven, eventually when they make it into the wilderness. You know, uh, the, the festival that is used to celebrate Passover is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it makes sense that in this passage, as Jesus is trying to make sense of Passover and who he is, He talks about blood. He talks about bread, right? The feeding of the 5,000, if you read the Gospels, where where did that take place? Was it in a populated city? Well, no, the Gospels say that it was in a deserted area where there was nowhere to get food. It feels almost like a wilderness, huh? Jesus provides bread there. What did the disciples meet last week? Well, they reached, uh, or they met a raging sea. And then what happened? Jesus brought them safely on dry ground to the other side. Here's where I think John is taking us. The context is Passover. There's a prophet, there's two provisions, lamb uh, and and bread. And I think what Jesus is saying is, is, hey, it's Passover. And guess what? This is my ultimate metaphor illustration. I am the true prophet. 
I am the true sacrifice. I am the true bread that will bring you life. And that's where he's taking us here today. All right, so uh, I don't know if you know this, all of you wearing green today, there's a football game this afternoon. Um, it's called the Super Bowl, right? And so it's fitting to talk about the NFL for just a moment. If you don't care about the NFL, just bear with me uh, for just a second. But um, I've shared this before. I did some chaplaincy work for the New York Giants. Uh, I was more a chaplain in training than I was their chaplain. But what happened in that year, and especially with all the rookies when they come in, uh, they have player development and they sit them down and they make sure the chaplains know uh, that it's really important that we help these young men in particular figure out how to use their money well. And the reason this is important is, I don't know if you know this statistic, at least this is where it was back when I was there in 2009, and then in 2015 it was the same, I don't know where it is now, but 80% of all NFL athletes are broke within three years of leaving the league. 80% are broke within three years of leaving the league, which is mind-blowing seeing that the average annual pay of any NFL athlete is $2.7 million, and the base salary for someone who signs an annual contract is $700,000, roughly, okay? And so within three years, all of that is gone. Why? Well, obviously, there's no simplistic answer to this. Part of it is, is they're young men, and you drop a million dollars in their pocket, and, you know, all sorts of crazy things are happening, and, and they need help, right? And they have, uh, NFL teams have, you know, an entire organization of people who are helping them. But, but here's the one thing that, um, you know, we were told to keep our eyes out for uh, that drains their money from them more than anything else or faster than anything else. You know what it was? It was their crew. Their crew. So here's who these athletes' crew were. These are like their third cousins who didn't really talk to them until they got famous. And they're like, oh, you remember me? We used to hang out. You know, we used to like ride bikes together. Don't forget me when you get there, when you make it big. I was a part of your success, right? Or the person in college who's like, remember, I helped you study for that test. Don't forget me. Hey, you're in my hometown. I live here now. Can you get me and my family some tickets? You know, it, that was real. And, and there are these stories of, of people dropping $10,000 for dinner Uh, for their crew some nights. And so it is no wonder uh, that the money would be depleted quickly just with that alone. Now here's the trick. Do you know what ends up happening when those athletes will run out of money? No longer have a crew. They disappear. You know, it's it's evident that, that they did not want that relationship with that person. They just wanted that person's stuff. As we jump into this text today, That is exactly who Jesus is addressing. It is the crowds. And we might look at the crowds and say, look, the crowds are following Jesus. But what Jesus is going to quickly show us is that now they're they're treating me like they're my crew. That they want my stuff, but they could care less about me. Friends, even in my own heart this week, as I'm wrestling uh, how I view Jesus, I have to ask myself this question, and I think we need to ask ourselves this question is is do we treat jesus like we're his crew like we just want his stuff that we come to him for selfish reasons for material reasons to consume him and ultimately the focus is not on him being the god of the universe but we're just walking around in selfie mode the focus is on us here's the setup Verses 22 to 24, we didn't read it, but the crowds came back and they're like, Jesus fed us here yesterday, let's go find him. And they noticed the boat was gone, so they, they chase him down on the other side of the lake. And then they go, okay, like, why did you come over here, Jesus? And, and so he begins to engage with them. Verse 59, we're not going to read it, but it tells us that 
Jesus' teaching today is going to be in the context of a synagogue. So in the context of Passover and a synagogue, you can imagine when he starts talking about bread and blood and sacrifice, uh, they're paying attention, right? And so let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Lord, (laughs) uh, we do recognize that Uh, This afternoon, our nation's largest worship service, where there will be worship songs sung and plenty of tithes and offerings um, (laughs) given for the sake of sport, Uh, Lord, that's not lost on us, that that's where we gather, and that's the context in which we gather today. And Lord, while it is just fun, and you give us good gifts to be able to gather and, and not only watch a fun sporting event, but cheer on most of our favorite team, But Father, you also give us a beautiful opportunity this morning to sober up. (laughs) Lord, we are at the worship service right now. Lord, one that calls our attention to you. Lord, towards bread that will not fail us. Lord, after the Super Bowl, we're going to be hungry again tomorrow. (laughs) But Lord, with you, the bread of life, we will never be hungry again. And so Lord, show us how you satisfy us more than anything else that we could consume on this earth that perishes. Holy Spirit, would you guide my words and protect them? And Lord, would you open our hearts to who you are? We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so two points. The first point we're going to look at today is getting Jesus all wrong. We're going to look at the crowds and how they get Jesus all wrong. And we're going to look at three brief pictures of unbelief. Here's the first one. Verses 25 to 27. These are the respectful materialists. The respectful materialists, you'll see in verse 25, they say rabbi. It's not like they don't respect Jesus. They're calling him this proper name. They're looking at him and saying, teacher who we're honoring and respecting. But Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. He says, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're coming to me because you are a consumer, a materialist. And you just want me, I fed your bellies yesterday and you want me to feed your bellies again today. Let me show you how we can today be respectful materialists. We can pray to Jesus, heal me. But you know what the subtext can be sometimes? When my life is restored, I'll go back to ignoring you. How about this one? I need money. And then the parentheses we say, so I can go on living without having to depend on you. We could say, give me this relationship or these people. And again, the subtext is so I can go on and relationally replace you when I get what I want. Friends, every single one of us can slip into this gear of being respectful materialists and miss Jesus altogether. Here's a second category, the self-righteous doers. They're like, oh, wow, okay, Jesus called us out on that one. So, uh, okay, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Or maybe we don't want to be these materials. So, so tell us what we need to do to kind of get on your good list. Jesus later corrects them and says, it has nothing to do with what you do. It just has to do with believing in me. Friends, when we are saying, God, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That is the works that God requires of us. We're still in selfie mode. We're not saying, what, what have you done for me? We're saying, what, what can I do then to get into your good graces? Because it's still all about me. Here's a third category. This is Mr. and Mrs. Prove It. Mr. and Mrs. Prove It. Verse 30, they kind of like, believe in you. Okay, fine. You need to prove yourself again then to me. What, what sign do you do 
that we may see and believe you. What, what works do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness because it's written He gave them that manna. Jesus is actually knowing their hearts. He says, he says it wasn't Moses who gave it to you. So, so these people aren't actually thinking that God was the one who gave them the manna. They're thinking Moses was the dude who gave them bread from heaven. They're like, Moses is a great prophet. He gave us this. You show us something to, to prove to us then that you're a great prophet. What, what have you done for me lately? Show me. It's not enough that you know, he's turned water into wine and bread and you know, so on and so forth. Like, now you've you got to do more for us, Jesus. Prove it. Well, Jesus offers three corrections. The first one to the respectful materialist, verse 27, he basically tells them materialism kills. He says, Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. He points us to places like this in Matthew 6, where Jesus is teaching. He says, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where three thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying to these respectful materialists, if your treasures are in things that perish, your heart is there as well, and it will perish along with those things. Materialism kills. Here's the second thing he's teaching them, is that faith is what saves. What must we do? Verse 29, he says, you simply believe in him who he has sent. He's saying, believe in me. Have faith in me. That I am who I say I am. That I will do what I say I will do. It has nothing to do with you. We hate that. We really hate that as modern Americans. We want it to be about us. And Jesus is saying, faith is what saves There's misplaced credit that Jesus also wants to bring out where he says, it isn't Moses who actually gave you the bread from heaven. It was my father, and he's doing it again. I'm the bread. I'm the manna. Pay attention. Friends, in summary, Jesus is saying, materialism will destroy your soul. Faith in me will give you life. And don't mistake credit, right? You're attributing your gifts and your goodness to a man, and his gifts are only, and and the gifts you have received are only from the God of the universe. It's not through our hard work, it's not through our pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is by God's grace and God's grace alone. And the ultimate provision he's going to offer us now is himself, his bread. Here's the second point is finding the bread of life. And this is Jesus' thesis. This is the first of multiple I am statements where Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am. Maybe you've heard that in last week with that ego a me. I don't know if you were here. Uh, and we talked about that general I am. I think he was setting us up for all the rest of the I am statements that are to follow. But here's the point. You know, it's like Jesus has taken us when we're in selfie mode. He's like, let me, let me see your camera. And he hits that little, you know, circle arrow thing so that the camera switches to the other side. And hopefully it's not on that weird mode where you have a face close to it and it's got this weird shape to it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all have no idea. I'm just going to keep moving at this point. But Jesus wants to say, turn the camera around. It's about me, not about you. I am what every human heart is longing for. Not stuff, not health, not self-actualization. 
Not, you know, the best you ever. Not the America you want. Not the form of justice that you want. I'm it. I am what will satisfy. Now here's, here's the great irony. <laughs> is that Jesus is, is talking about, 30, in verse 35, I am the bread of life. It's not like he's saying, I won't satisfy. In fact, he's saying, I will satisfy you far deeper than any materialism, any consumerism than you could ever come up with. This living bread fulfills your deeper longings. And so we'll look at these three S's that uh, this bread of life brings in its scope, security, and then salvation. First, this idea of scope. I don't know if you read it, but as you're reading 35, uh, it says, uh, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, shall never hunger. You know, that whoever kind of blows the doors off of our human categories of, of who we think we need to be to come to Jesus in the first place. Whoever means all. Probably offensive as he's standing here in a synagogue talking to people. He's saying, it's not just you being Jewish folk that gives you the opportunity to come to me. It's whoever. He goes down in verse 40, uses the term everyone. And, and really, my guess is, is Isaiah 55 is somewhere in uh, John's mind or in Jesus' mind as he's teaching. It says, come Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's why we sang that song, Come Ye Sinners. Friends, this scope and and, and meaning anybody can come to Him without money, regardless of race or creed or resume or bank statement, the reason that fulfills us as the bread of life is I, I, think, I think that's one of the deepest longings of our heart is to belong. And Jesus is saying, you already do if you just believe in me. You belong. You're loved. That's it. Here's the second one is, is security. So, so Scope kind of leans into this idea of that initial coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and he's saying it, it costs you nothing. It cost me everything. The second part has to do with more of the staying, right? Uh, this idea of security. He says it in the negative in verse 37. He says, whoever the Father brings to me, I will never cast out. And then in 39, he says, uh, it's the will of him who sent to me, I shall lose nothing. So he said it negatively. Once you're mine, you're mine. I'm never kicking you out. I'm never getting rid of you. You're here. You're with me. He puts it positively there in verse 39. He says, I shall lose nothing but raise them up on the last day. That's the resurrection. That's our bodily resurrection. And he says, these people will have eternal life, verse 40, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why will Jesus never give us up? Why will he eventually restore us for all of eternity? Well, that's just as important. In verse 38, he actually tells us, he says, I've come down not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is it, that he's given me the people he will give me and I will never lose them. Friends, our security lies in the fact that it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus Christ perfectly keeping the mission his father sent him to earth to do, to save us and to hold us for all of eternity. Now this gets into this idea of predestination and election. 
And we're not going to go too far into that rabbit hole. People are like, whoa, how much time do we have left for this church service? Here's what this is saying. I don't know if you noticed it, but, but it says, All the Father gives me. And it's the will of Him who sent me. He goes on and He says, um, oh, I lost my place. Yeah, 37. It says, the, All who Father gives me will come to me. This is the idea of irresistible grace. If the Father has, has given us to the Son for salvation, we can't resist it. You're done. You're done. And He will never, ever lose you. Even that song we sang, uh, the only fitness he requires, as Tommy said, is to feel our need of him, and then it says, this he gives us. We don't even care that we're sinners without Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, lifeless. God is the one who has to make dead things alive. Why is this important? Well, because it yields this idea of security. Friends, if it were up to us to work ourselves to God, then guess what? We could very easily lose that salvation, right? We will spend the rest of our lives neurotically maintaining our salvation if it was up to us in the first place to do anything but respond to His work of grace that He has given to us. Predestination is a hard thing for our hearts, but I, I think Jesus and Paul, when He talks about it, is actually giving it to us for our hearts to sing in a response of love for him? Because if we realize he has saved us from what he has saved us out of, we will go, oh God, I deserve nothing and you gave me everything. It's kind of like a bride who feels herself on her wedding day to be very unlovely. She's getting ready to marry this groom of her dreams and she's just sitting there going, ah, but I'm terrible. I'm not even sure I should go through with this. You know, the groom breaks the rules because he hears that she's struggling and he walks in and he just tenderly holds her and says, I love you. No matter what you've done or what you do, I love you. I'm going to commit myself to you for my entire life. I am laying my life down for you because I want to give that love to you. What do you think her response is going to be? She'll probably cry her makeup off, right? And that'll be an issue for the wedding ceremony. But there will be this beautiful response of love. She's not going to stand up there on the altar and say, I don't know, you're a little too exclusive here. I'm not sure we should go through with this. No, she's going to say, I love you back. I use that illustration because do you know how God talks about the relationship of Jesus with his church as a groom and his bride, who he laid his life down for, who he laid his love onto when we were very, very unlovely. Friends, this is important because I think a lot of us are just exhausted right now because we feel like we don't have that sense of security and wherever we are finding our identities. In fact, I think that's part of the anxiety, the deaths of despair that happened today. I, I think we are literally dying, trying as hard as we can to hold on to these identities that we've created for ourselves in desperate fear that we are going to be cast out. And Jesus is saying, I will never cast you out. That reaches a deeper longing than you and I could ever imagine. Here's the third and final. is salvation. Salvation, verses 41 to 45. This is the long haul, right? At the very end, Jesus states the obvious. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he or she will live forever. And the bread that I will give to the world is my flesh. We hate this. We we don't even hate it. We don't even care about eternal life in our culture. We don't. We're affluent. We're upperly mobile. We have doctors for those things to keep us going. There's only certain times in our life where we go, oh, eternal life is significant. And I just want us to strain our eyes if we just don't think about how important eternal life is to just sit and think about how significant it is that Jesus is saying, you have eternal life. You may go through 70 years of hard, but at the end of the day, you will live forever in joy. Not a tear will be shed. I think of, all right, I'm sorry, I went, I'm going back to the Super Bowl. But I was just trying to think, like, how does this work? You know, imagine if Nick Sirianni, head coach of the Eagles, came to the team and somehow they believed that he was like this football magician who can do amazing things. And he just said, if you follow me, you're going to the Super Bowl. And if they actually believed it, how do you think they would interpret the hard practices and the injuries and the time away from family and, and, and all the difficulties, the losses that even happened during the year, if they know they're going to win the Super Bowl. It would feel entirely different. It would be a different sort of perseverance. There might be joy that crept in in places where it doesn't make sense that it would creep in. I know it's a lame illustration. I'm trying too hard here on the Super Bowl day. <laughs> but it is really something. If we know that that eternity of Super Bowl victories is ours, then it gives us hope to endure today. Look at suffering war-torn churches. Look at the church during slavery, particularly the the old spirituals and hymns that, 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 that we got from the church in that age. Those are people who needed to know that eternity was real. And Jesus is saying, I meet that deep longing of the soul with my bread of life that I give you. So at the end of the day, Jesus is encouraging us to take our eyes off the here and now and show us how Jesus is our better Passover provider and provision. And with that, I'm going to pray. Move us to the tables. I'm going to invite any of the elders who are serving as I pray, if you could make your way up to the tables. Uh, Let me just pray for us. Lord, as we come to the table, I beg you to please this morning Give us the eyes to see the significance of what we are doing. That this is pointing us to the bread of life, something that will satisfy us not only in the here and now, but for all of eternity. Would you help us get there this morning? We pray these things in your name. Amen.